Brian, and you're listening to Friends in Music with Brian Doherty, that's me, a podcast about all things music for those who are obsessed by it. I encourage you to subscribe to my podcast on your chosen platform, and thank you for listening. My guest today is Greg Scaff, a native of Wichita, Kansas. Greg is a New York City-based jazz guitarist and composer whose skills and reputation place him among the premier's practitioners of his craft. After moving to New York in the early 1980s, Scaff's first professional gig was with the legendary Stanley Turrentine. The list of luminaries who have, who have tapped Scaff for his fretwork include Ron Carter, Bobby Watson, Freddie Hubbard, Dave Hazeltine, Martha Wash, and many others. With his latest CD release, Soul Mation, one reviewer reports that Greg Scaff reaches new heights as a guitarist and composer. Slated for a late 2020 release is a trio recording that finds Scaff in the company of two music legends, bassist Ron Carter and drummer Tootie Heath. Under normal circumstances, you can hear Greg's guitar playing at the Broadway musical Wicked, where he's manned the guitar chair since it opened in 2003. We welcome Greg to the show. Why don't we start the conversation by giving you some time to maybe introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about you, and so on, and um, and so forth. So, go ahead. Okay, well, like Brian said, I'm a New York uh, City-based guitarist, working guitarist, at least until the pandemic. But... Um, I grew up in the Midwest, in Kansas, and I moved here in hopes of uh, getting a jazz career. And I've done that, but I've done a lot of other things. I've worked, always just wanted to work as a musician, no matter what the situation. So I've done club dates, I've done uh, R&B gigs, schlepping my equipment around the city for little gigs. Um, but I've managed to have to get a five, put out five CDs of my, my own, under my own name, instrumental CDs, as well as holding, currently holding a chair on at the Broadway Musical Wicked. So I've done that for 16 years while I'm doing all this other stuff. And I'm still moving. I have a, a new record. Um, it's going to be released later this year. It's a trio with bassist Ron Carter and drummer Tootie Heath. And um, that's where I'm at right now. Just right. trying to keep the chops up while we're not digging. I hear you. Well, thank you. That's. I mean, it sounds like you've had a very full and interesting and varied career thus far. And... Um, 
Why don't you take us I back? I'm kind of fortunate, just, but one factor was I always just wanted to work right. as a guitarist. So I would take a lot of other gigs that a lot of other people might not take. For sure. Um, why don't you bring us back to the early days? How did you, how did you get into music way back when? And um, what were so, some of your influences and so on? Um, so, yeah. So when I was a teenager, hearing the British rock and roll bands, that really captured, you know, my imagination. And I just wanted to be like that and be in a band. And I didn't really understand what it entailed. But, you know, I managed to get a guitar. My parents got me a guitar and I joined a band. And, you know, we play around the Midwest around town in the Midwest and I, uh, but I gradually, my, so my influences back then earlier, early like that were people like Jimmy Page, uh, Keith Richards, the guitar players in those bands. Right. But I didn't really understand or didn't really think about actually um, attaining any kind of um, level of, um, technique on my instrument. I just always wanted to play, you know, I would learn the songs and the parts in the songs and that was it. And then a few years later. Did you, did you take lessons or anything or did you just you know, pick up a guitar? Probably just a couple lessons uh, from a guy, you know, it would be out of a Mel Bay book and I, and I think I was just confused and I thought, well, this isn't what I want to learn. <laughs> right. So I just, I stopped after about four lessons and I would just learn off the, off, off records. And I didn't really have any, I didn't really, early on, I didn't have any curiosity about becoming a real, you know, a very good musician really i just wanted to play in a band and play those parts i didn't really understand how far you could take it but a few years later uh, one of the guys in our band his father had a, a record collection of all kinds of jazz and i remember when i first heard it there was a, a charlie parker song and i remember thinking well this must be dixieland because it sounds so happy i i knew nothing about it but uh, you know but at the same time, we had all these records by the Chicago blues guys like Magic Sam and Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf, and we would be learning those songs. And then, do you feel uh, like do, you, do you, I'm I'm starting to interrupt, but do you feel like the Chicago scene was influential? Oh yeah, you know, yeah, from, from your geographical standpoint. Yeah, from from a what? I said just just because you're from the Midwest, that was the closest. Um, well, I never thought of it. Maybe, but I'll tell you another thing. On the radio, there was a lot of regional rock and roll and sort of R and B that I think never really got very popular. Um, on the East or West Coast, there was a lot of smaller groups. I can't think of, I can't think to name any of them now, but um, there were really good players around town where I grew up, Wichita. Really, there was a lot of really good musicians of all sorts. And another, another kind of pivotal moment was when 
there's there was and is a keyboard player named Mike Finnegan who was living in our in Wichita at the time and he had a band that Hey Greg, if you can hear me. Greg had a recording Greg. contract with Columbia. Greg, and, Greg, hold on. Um, he managed Greg. Greg, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, you're free you're freezing your audio and your video is freezing. So at the at the bottom of your screen, if you wouldn't mind, go to where it says stop video. Okay. Can you and well I want to see if you stop the video. Uh will the will we get more will we get a better audio? Okay. So you were about you were telling us about um Well there was a pivotal uh, moment where um sort of a musical mentor of mine named Mike Finnegan, who's still around, lives in Los Angeles. He was living in my hometown and he had a band that came to New York. Uh, they had a recording contract with Columbia. They were called the Surfs. Uh, but while he was here, he was uh, chosen to play on the Jimi Hendrix record, Electric Ladyland. Oh, wow. So... When he came back to Wichita, he, he gave me two records. He gave me, there was a George Benson record, and then he gave me a Jimi Hendrix record. And when I heard them, I was just blown away. I was, in fact, when I heard the Hendrix record, I thought, I really didn't think it was guitar. I thought it was some, I didn't understand what the sound, how you made that sound. But those sort of, those two uh, guitar players, they really inspired me early on, as well as, and Mike's mentorship really kind of spurred me to really become a better guitarist and musician, so. So can you elaborate on that a little more? So he, 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 he hipped you to some different music, so I take that, but was he, was yeah. he coming to your gigs and giving you feedback, Mike, was Mike he? Actually, he was, well, our band practiced in my mom's basement, either our basement or my family's basement or the drummer's basement. And Mike would come there and come down to the basement and tell us, you know, teach us things. How to tune? He actually taught me how to tune up, tune my guitar. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, that's helpful. And yeah, yeah, and a lot of other things. See, I remember. You know, and at the time, I don't think he could have been more than in his mid-20s, but he was really knowledgeable. He, he had actually, um, I forget where he'd gone to school on a basketball scholarship, but then he had moved to Wichita and he already knew a lot. So, I mean, he'd already, when he came, when he would mentor us, he had already played on the record, Electric Ladyland. Oh my goodness. So, um yeah, but Mike would, he would come and just kind of coach our band. And then we would, um, our band, we would sneak into the, the clubs where he was gigging or else we would stand outside and just listen to the band. And it really made, uh, he really uh, was an influence, made a big impression on me. And that's, that sort of got me to thinking about, well, wow, wonder if I, maybe I should move to New York because that's where it seems like everything is going on. So I kind of set my sights there. And then, um, and I moved around a little bit. I lived in 
San Francisco for a little while for a year. And then I moved, but I happened to move to Rochester, Rochester, New York, upstate. So, so when you thought you were moving, so when you wanted to come to New York, what, what, what brought you to Rochester and why didn't you come to the, uh, directly to the city? Well, you know, it's kind of embarrassing, but I really didn't know about much about New York State or New York City. In fact, um, I thought I was sort, sort of moving close to New York City when I moved to Rochester. But what brought me there was a keyboard player I knew had, a, had gotten a gig playing in a, in a, uh, in a jazz R&B, uh, an R&B jazz group. And they needed a guitar player, so he sent for me, and I I moved there. I moved there with my girlfriend. We packed up and just drove there from Kansas. And, and then, then, and that group was located in Rochester. Yeah, they were located in Rochester, but we would travel around um, and play for. <laughs> it seems it'll probably. I don't know if those days will ever come back. We would play for weeks at a time in cities like Hartford, Hartford, Connecticut, uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, Buffalo, uh, Cleveland, um, Rochester, of course, because that's where we were based. Um, so is this like in hotels and stuff, like in the lounge? Uh, or? Some, some hotels, but mostly clubs. Um, I mean, just kind of... Uh, Clubs, yeah, really oh, nice. Really Very nice. There was one hotel in in um, Buffalo that we played at that had a jazz series, but most of those were just club gigs. That would have a band five, hire a band for five nights a week. Those are definitely days that um, I guess if you were if you were born after nineteen eighty. You, 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 you will never right you'll never experience those days but i'm i'm old enough to remember those days as well you know just yeah. there were bands everywhere right right craig oh man yeah and there were gigs everywhere yeah because I, that, that's basically how i supported myself most of the time and then after a year in rochester i um we packed up my girlfriend and i packed up and we moved just sort of cold move to New York. Just, uh, we found, um, there was someone in Rochester who knew someone in New York who was renting a room and we just moved here. We packed up our stuff in our car and moved here. Wow. And uh, <laughs> it was something I would never do now. I mean, it was just because I didn't, there was so much I didn't know what was it like? What, what, what was it like those first days? Did, did you stay with your friend? Did you look for an apartment? What did you do? Well, I remember we drove in and it was about three o'clock in the morning when we got here and there was trash blowing around the streets and people walking around. The old days. <laughs> I, I felt like crying. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome but, to New York. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just as I pictured it. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, yeah. We. I remember. It felt like crying, and then so we. Um, we had this room. 
we were staying on the Lower East Side in what now is not too bad a neighborhood, but it was really bad then. <clears throat> I mean, it was, <laughs> it was terrible then. Um, we were on 10th Street between Avenue C and D. Oh, boy. Yeah, but, um, and I remember I would walk across, um, I would walk across um, East, the East Village to the West Village and just go hang out at the jazz clubs, I would probably, I don't think I would go in that much because I just didn't have any money. But every night I was out or I'd take my guitar if I heard about some jam session and just gradually I met people and found work. What were some of the clubs that you would go to either for jams or to, or to hear some music if you can oh, describe uh, it? To different jams. Yeah. Um, I think there wasn't a jam session there, but I would go to hear, I would stand outside of Sweet Basil, it was on 7th Avenue, or I would stand in the stairwell at the Village Vanguard and listen to mm -hmm. the music. Uh, some of the jam sessions, there was a place on 145th and Broadway called the Breezen Lounge, and it was owned by George Benson and run by his manager, and they had a jam session, and I remember I got to play one night with some guys that I thought were just the neighborhood guys. They were so good. I just, I remember I went home and I told my girlfriend, I said, I can't make it here. Just like any, I thought they were just neighborhood guys, but it was Marcus Miller and a keyboard named, keyboard player named Bernard Wright yep. playing <laughs> piano. Uh, but I didn't know who they were. I thought yeah. they were just like the guys from around the corner. Like, I, I, I guess, you know, that's kind of the way it is in New York, though, right? The, the guys yeah. around the corner can be, can be those guys, right? Well, that, that's true, yeah. Um, and um, so you described, like, hearing Charlie Parker. Oh, and, first, yeah. yeah. Yeah, as your, you know, as your in, intro. I remember, I remember hearing... Milt Jackson's Goodbye, which was only recorded like in the early 70s, but I remember it vividly as that that's the record that kind of brought me in. So can you describe what, what it was about the Charlie Parker record? What did you what did you start listening to after that? And how did you investigate, you know, well, getting into Bebop? Well, Stan, the keyboard player in our band, his his father had this record collection um, of all kinds of jazz and that, I remember that Charlie Parker song by the way it's called She Wrote R-O-T-E I uh -huh. remember that was that was the song that I, that I heard but um, he had other records but, and then uh, we knew someone who worked at a record store so we would get free records and I remember we had records so we would be in Stan's uh, bedroom and listening to records by S Elvin Jones and Sam Rivers. Um, I can't remember a lot of the others, but I remember we had, I just, I remember we had all the, the blue, we were into blues a lot. We got into blues a lot. So we would have, like I said, Magic Sam, um, I forget the other Chicago Buddy Guy, 
Oh, nice. We had uh, Howlin' Wolf Records, and uh, um, but the other jazz stuff. Then I I started buying jazz records. I had Charlie Christian record, and then I got a a West Montgomery record called the Incredible Jazz Guitar of West Montgomery. Um, and I th I think actually that record. I think that Ron Carter plays on that record. Oh wow. Um, I only mention it because Ron's on my latest recording that hasn't come out yet. But um, yeah. Um, so do you think we, Django Reinhardt? I remember. Oh, yeah. I really went through a Django Reinhardt phase. So, I, I so you were open to listening, getting into other genres because you described yourself at the beginning as you know kind of pop, rock, blues. Yeah. And do you think, you know, that what, what kept you open? Because I don't think not, there are some musicians, including myself, who may, maybe weren't so open to, to hear, you know, some, I, I feel myself resistant sometimes to like opening, opening up. So, you know what, I don't, I don't really, that's hard to say. I think it was just the, 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 the finding out that there was all this other music because when, when I grew up, we just hear those few songs on the radio and learn them so we could play them at some dance and then just gradually learning what there's all this stuff. What all is, right, yeah. and then, you know, also at that time there was like just a burgeoning jazz and I mean, rock scene with, with, um, can't remember there was just so many good rock groups back then it seemed to me they were getting just better and better and so I, I at the same time I was listening to all that because I could play that I couldn't play any of the jazz I was listening to at that point and then I I took some lessons from a um, there was a guitarist in Wichita at the university I studied for a year and a half this is before I left, of course, but his name was Jerry Hahn. And I studied for a year and a half with him. And he would turn me on to a lot of music, you know, uh, the Miles Davis records and John Coltrane records. But at the same time, our band, we were playing song, uh, you know, a lot of rock and R&B. We would play James Brown songs, but we would also be playing songs by this group called The Band, who were oh, incredible yeah. songwriters, like, uh, and people like that. I forget some of the other groups we would play with. So you find yourself in New York City on the Lower East Side, and it sounds like you're, you're kind of chasing music down in the city, and really really wherever it is and so how do you what are those what what happens next how do you get from you know the guy who's well, standing in the hallway at the vanguard to you know you're actually getting a call for a gig and 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 what kind of gigs were well, there and so on um, i did a few a few i actually did a few jazz gigs when i first came here one uh was on one of those gigs, the drummer Lewis Hayes was playing. Oh, yeah. was, Lewis has a brother 
and his brother had hired me. Uh, that was my first gig, my first paying gig. But at the same time, then we found an apartment and, uh, and another, we found another apartment, uh, kind of a room within an apartment. And uh, the person who was leasing us that room, he had, he's a saxophone player and he had a gig with this, with a singer uh, who was popular at the time, Evelyn Champagne King. Oh yeah. She, she's still around, but she was really big then. And so I auditioned for her group. He got me an audition for that. And I got that gig and I was, so I started traveling with that group. And uh, I actually, I made was, an okay. What was her hit song? Uh, she had one called Shame. Oh, yeah. She had another song called Love Come Down. Oh, and, great song. Uh, I love that yeah. song. And there was another one. Is this, is this uh, the early 80s at this point? Love Come Down yeah. was, I think, like 81. Uh -huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right through there, 82. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, and I had that gig and just kind of like the gig in Rochester where you travel around and play in one city for five nights. We really toured. We toured the South and the Midwest and California. And, I mean, we did a lot of traveling on a bus. So, so there was a lot of, you know, practical, since I didn't go to school that much, I didn't have those kind of, that kind of training, but I had a lot of on the job training playing, you know, playing an actual gig and getting paid for it. So I was kind of lucky in that respect. It and sounds, then from there, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's, it just sounds that the type of experience that you're describing is, is the missing piece for a lot of us musicians that, you know, we, we study, we, we listen, we, we do our homework, but to get that practical, you know, on the job training is very hard to, hard to get, wouldn't, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, especially now in this period right. <laughs> where yeah. where we have to resort to you know playing doing a, a Zoom gig with other people or else uh uh well well there are I noticed some of the clubs are are opening up where the band will actually be playing in the club although there's not no audience. All right, right. But um you know, so you, people can tune in, which I was thinking that might be really uh, lucrative for the clubs because more, they can get more people to tune in. As, as long as people pay a little something, mm -hmm. they can get a lot more people, uh, a lot bigger audience than they could in their club. I, I remember, I mean, maybe this is around the two, the, the late nineties or the two thousands, but the knitting factory, I think was the first venue that I ever heard of that was doing like live streaming. And I don't know if it was just wow. audio or, but it was, it was a while ago. Maybe I'm wrong. If, if somebody it knows, you can correct me. I thought so, but I, th I thought it was, I thought it was unique, but like, why would anybody want to like, you know, yeah. Why would anybody want to sit in sit in front of their, you know, receiver at or computer at the time, you know? But but I but I guess you have a point. It's gonna it's gonna it might open up, give us some variety and some other options in the future. Yeah, especially if somebody doesn't want to go out. Well, 
or you know like now you can't go out but what if you don't want to go out like right. that that right. wasn't yeah or if you're home with the kids right right so you brought us to evelyn champagne king and here okay. you are you're touring and you're yeah. gaining this practical knowledge and uh take us back there Okay, so after Evelyn, then I, I auditioned for, there's um, a jazz drummer named Chico Hamilton, and I auditioned for his band. I got in his band. We, I did a, I wasn't in Chico's band very long, but it was sort of this transition to um, another audition I did was with the saxophone player Stanley Turrentine. Well, Greg, for a guy that's just coming in to, you know, to New York, you sure you're like hitting your batting average is great. <laughs> I, well, like I, I think it was I was out in the street every night, hang out or and during the daytime, we would I would go to various people's acquaintances or someone I met. We would get together and play in their apartments. Right. Do that during the day and. At night, I would just hang out at clubs. So I, you know, that networking really helped because right. I would meet people. I remember, um, I remember Stanley Turrentine. I remember he was. I heard he was looking for a guitarist. So I went up to. There was a place in Harlem called Small's Paradise. Yeah. Not to be confused with the club in the village called Small's. But at small, Stanley Turrentine was was uh, working at Small's Paradise. So I went up there, and I just, <laughs> just it sounds so naive. I went up and I asked who his manager was, and I found out who his manager was, who happened to be in the club, and I told him who I was, and I heard they were looking <laughs> for a guitarist. Nothing wrong with that, you know. No, but yeah, there isn't. I guess I was not quite desperate, but I was sort of hungry. And so uh, his manager told me they were having auditions, like I think in the next couple of days and at this um, rehearsal studio. So he told me where it was and when. Greg. Greg. I auditioned along. I remember there was about three or four other guitar players. And after the audition, this manager told me, <laughs> told me, be at Carnegie Hall tomorrow at three o'clock for a sound check and wear a tuxedo. Right. And so I didn't even really know the repertoire, but I did my first gig at Carnegie Hall. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, standing on stage and not really knowing the material but i i got the gig and so that led to about five years of five and a half years of traveling and once again stanley at that time he was very popular we traveled like all over the world but um a lot of traveling all all the time but uh, at the same time when we were off it wasn't, we weren't on what they call retainer, like which some, some bands have. We were not on retainer. So I, I managed to find this, I did this for about a year. I was um, delivering uh, for a restaurant, a, a Japanese, a sushi restaurant. I rode a bike and I delivered, uh, you know, food 
lunch to, you know, businesses for a restaurant. I was one of the guys that rides around on a bike, you know, that you see. Um, so I did that when we were off and then I would be, you know, traveling with Stanley for about five years. And then I, I Craig, quit. we could do, we could do an entire episode on the, on the side jobs that musicians have had. Yeah. Um, you know, like from restaurant delivery. Um, I worked for a landscaper. <laughs> I washed yeah. dishes in a restaurant. <laughs> oh, you did? Yeah. Well, in the early days, like right after, like uh, my college days, you know. Right but, after college, a job washing dishes. Yeah. Isn't that great? Yeah. You go to college and you start washing dishes. <laughs> yeah. When I lived in San Francisco, I think I was 19 and I, I worked in a, um, it was called a quick trip. It's kind of like a 7-Eleven and the guy got held up. Oh my goodness. <laughs> were, you, were you behind the cash register? Yes. <laughs> did, did you hand over all the money? Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, um, but at the same time I was working in a, uh, at night, I was working in a strip club on in North Beach, <laughs> so in a band. You know, could, tell us more about that because I've I, the first time I ever heard about bands playing in strip clubs was from the Hal Blaine, Hal Blaine's autobiography. That that oh, really? that, that that's where he got he got his start. Hal Blaine of the Wrecking Crew. Yeah, yeah. So, in, in Chicago, go go ahead. Tell us more about that. Well. Um, I might have to edit. Uh, there was, there was. I'll a, edit some. There was a club called the Condor, and I can't remember how I got in that band, but I was in a band. I forget the name of the band now. Wait, we so were, you'd actually play, um, for the for the girls dancing, right? Yeah, they we we would play their number, um. They all had a little, you know, a little a special song. We would play behind them. We would do a set and there would be about five dancers doing, it was like a warm up to the main act who, the main act was a woman named Carol Dota who became, she was actually pretty renowned. She was the first, I think they call them bottomless, topless dancer. So wearing nothing but maybe pasties i think yeah yeah sounds like a hard sounds like a tough gig for musicians it was it was (laughs) (laughs) it was kind of a strange gig you know just coming from kansas and then moving there and then all of a sudden you're playing in front of naked women and hanging out with them backstage before you go on did did you know what is what are you thinking at this time? Like, oh my God, I can't wait to start playing jazz, and I'm I'm only yeah, I'm yeah. only doing this temporarily. You know, what, exactly. what are you thinking? Exactly, but at the same time, the band was really good. It was one of those Bay Bay Area kind of funk groups, and it was it was actually a lot of fun playing those gigs. I and mean, what are yeah. some of the things you learned? Like, you know, what was it just? A good muscle builder did you play like six sets a night did you what you know it, it was a long night there were four sets a night at that club but uh and just you know 
just learning to lock in with the drummer. I remember the drummer was really good. So take us back now. So you, so you're, you're working Chico Hamilton, Stanley Turrentine, and are these like, you know, is, is Stanley Turrentine touring for four or five weeks at a time, Europe, uh, yeah, the U S yeah, like, we were, like what, yeah. like how, how long does this last? Elaborate a little more for us on, on this, on this one. Um, I was in Stanley's band for five and a half years. I quit after. And a half years. I forget why I quit, but I just thought I'd had enough. And I was a little, it was, it just became hard. It was a lot of traveling, being gone all the time. You know, I'd broken up with my girlfriend for, for different reasons, but that being one of them, just because I was never home. So I wanted to work more around New York. So I did. I play. I would play club dates. Um, by, cl by club dates, can you describe those for the listener? Club dates, right. Club dates, because when I first came to New York, I'd never heard the term club date. I thought club date was playing in a club. A club date on the East Coast is playing either a wedding or bar mitzvah or some kind of, you know, uh, party or industrial event that's that's a club date here mm -hmm. but um and i believe i think that's where i met you if yes we met yeah, we, i i know exactly we met playing a club date with robert pollock yeah and um but so tell us more about club dates i have i have very strong opinions about club dates in in that i feel like it built my even though I, I resisted, I, 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 I wish I can go back and just do, do them all over again with a, with a better attitude. But yeah, you know, that's, but, that, that's the, that was, that's what I learned. Like, it's as good as you, it's as good as you want to make it. Absolutely. You have to, I mean, I remember screwing around on a club date because, you know, people are just eating the fruit cocktail and not listening and you're playing. Yeah. <laughs> but if you take it seriously and just play the repertoire as best as you can, it can be really good. But I didn't always do that. But that sort of, in a way, prepared me to play Broadway shows because in a Broadway show, Broadway you know, the sh Broadway show music isn't my favorite repertoire, but it's the same thing. You're hired to do this and in good faith that you'll do it as best you can. Yes, indeed. And yeah. So I learned, um, you know, I became a little more, you know, respectful of, of just the genre and just, I think that's part of, be, of becoming a professional. Yes. There's something about, and, and not that this conversation is about me, but there's something about playing club dates and having people dance. It, it's dance music. And, yeah. I, and I remember, I also had a Mel Bay book. Was it a Mel Bay book? Maybe it was, or I don't remember, but it was um, a book called The dance band drummer it was like written by i think his name was joel rothman in the 70s or 60s and it ha it had like 
you know, basic cha-chas and bossa nova and basic swing beat. And I, I, I devoured that book when I was like, you know, 12 years old uh, with like no all, all, all these beats. And then years later, I end up playing all those beats on club dates and really to facilitate people's dancing. So there's, you know, just like, I don't know. So do, do you want to, do you want to tell us a like, little? what did you say? I was just going to ask you if you had, you know, what are some of the other takeaways you learned from club dates? Like, you know, as far as your playing and your chops and, you know. To, well, I think one of, one of the takeaways is to learn, like you just said, cha-cha or whatever it is. For me to really investigate, hey, what, what does a guitar player play on a cha-cha instead of just screwing around and not playing it right? Right. That's what I should have done. I think I eventually did do that. But all those, you know, all those different rhythms, they're valid. Yes, yes. And so, and that's part of, you know, being, you know, a better musician is learning how to do those well. Even though I may, even though I may think I'm never going to play a cha-cha on the gigs I really want. Actually, who knows? Maybe I will. That's right. Yeah. There's another aspect about these sort of tran. Um, I don't want to call them transitional gigs, but in in your in my mind, or I think probably many musicians experienced the same thing back in the day, that we thought, oh, we, you know, we're just doing this gig until the better gigs come around, and. Yeah, um, yeah. And and uh, it's actually um, I'm not sure if those experiences are available to people coming up in the business. And I'm not just talking about the pandemic. I'm, uh, have you seen like what do you see as far as trends for younger players coming up um, in in, in as, the business? As far as say that just, again? Yeah. What what are some opportunities for them that uh, I mean? How do you feel about what what? Where, how do they get their start? You got your start by listening to jazz outside of the vanguard. What, how do they get their start? Well, I think I still, I know, um, I think people still hang out and go to clubs and listen to music, at least here in New York in the village they do. You know, people, people go out and there are jam sessions. They still do, do that. And, and I know some really good musicians that play club dates, even though they might right. not advertise it. At, a, at around the time, so we stopped at around Stanley Turrentine. You're, you've just quit his band. You're probably feeling like I could, I want to stay home, but something else will come along. And you had told me once that you worked with the Weather Girls. Can you, was it around this time? Yeah, it was um, actually... Yeah, it was right after those two gigs actually overlapped a little bit. I remember because I was in Japan with Stanley Turrentine and I came back and the same night I arrived, I was doing it. I was working with the Weather Girls. <clears throat> I can't remember where, but I remember I fell asleep right before the, <laughs> before the gig just because of the jet lag. But yeah, so I worked with the Weather Girls, an R&B, really good band, good R&B unit. Uh, they, 
at that point they weren't uh they were they were just getting ready to split up and what was um, their t- tell us more about their music their hit songs the uh, the musical yeah, director and so on yeah the, what do you say the musical director musical yeah um they had a song called it's raining men and i think that was their biggest hit and at the time the musical director was a guy named a keyboard player named david cole a really talented guy who went on to become part of uh, a producing duo called c and c music factory this is in i think the late 80s mm-hmm. and yeah c and c music factory that david cole was part of that and so i i would i would record a little bit with them as well i think i on some of their hits because of my association with David. And then I, um, the one, one of the, the duo, the Weather Girls, they split up and uh, one of the two members, Martha Wash, she, um, she pursued her own solo career. So I, and I went on to work with her. Occasionally I still work with her again. Does, am I am I correct in saying that she has a very identifiable voice that we have probably all heard? Um, Martha is on some dance hits that are just uh, they're let me see iconic like everybody everybody dance. I uh, forget what the name of the song is. That is that her? Yeah. Everybody dance now. Yeah, in fact, yeah. just that one and there were there was a couple other ones martha was the voice she does she does i got the power right right she does that um there was another i forget the the name of her other hits but i've i've heard them on you know they they get used for commercials but at the time when she recorded those those hits were actually um there was another singer who was uh, the, it was Martha's voice, but another singer was being used for the visual. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So she wasn't in any videos, right? No, because, because probably because of her size, she's a big lady. So they got a real cute little um, smaller woman to sing on in the videos and to front the group live, but it was actually Martha singing. Sounds like uh sounds like fodder for a lawsuit in today's climate. Yeah, well, I think, <laughs> yeah, I think she did. Yeah, I think she uh, she did win that one too. <laughs> um, so so far, I mean, this is like you, you when when we started out, I said you've had a rich and varied you know career, and and now now you're actually laying it out for us because you've you know you're going from shows to actual clubs to strip clubs to weddings and and some jazz and and r&b um so two big pieces that i that i think would be very interesting for our audience would be you know your broadway experience uh, and also your your um your projects as a as, as a recording artist and and what you're doing so why don't we hit the broadway stuff first Okay, so the Broadway stuff, I, I remember, I, I think I started playing Broadway about 98, about 22 years ago. And what happened was I, 
I just was not in that click. It's, it's sort of a, it, I think more so back then, it was more of a click that was harder to get into. Whereas now I think, uh, I think to get into Broadway, if I was, if I knew then what I knew now, or the way how musicians approach it now is just to call up the person who holds a chair of the instrument that you play and ask if you can, if they need someone to sub for them. Mm -hmm. But um, back then I remember I, I didn't really, I didn't have any, any hooks into the Broadway scene, but I knew one guy who did a We lost Greg right there. Greg. And I remember and then, once he said, man, I wish I could have you come in, but I just don't, I know I owe guys favors and I've got my guys. I said, oh, that's okay, you know. But what happened, he needed someone, his show was closing and he had to, he had some dates he had to fill, he couldn't make. And he couldn't, none of his subs could make any of those dates. And since the show was closing, it was hard for him to get anyone to learn the show because if you, to learn somebody's show, it's kind of a lot of work and you don't want to do that unless if you're only getting one or two, right. You know, shows out of it, but that's what he was offering me. And I took it. So I learned his show. What was the I, show, Greg? It was called Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's an Andrew Lloyd Webber show. So I played those two shows and that show closed and that was that for a while until the other guitar player that played that show asked me to fill in for him on the road for a couple of weeks so i did that and then from that then i could call people and say hey i've done this and i think that's what i did i spoke to a couple people and said um that I had done that. So I had a little bit of Broadway experience and, you know, um, so I stubbed on a couple other shows and then I, I went out on the road. I was offered a road, a road tour of, I think it was, yeah, it was right when my daughter was born. I didn't want to go out on the road. So I was offered this, um, a six month, run of the show Rent, the Broadway show Rent mm -hmm. on the road and I turned it down and then I remember the next day I found out my wife was pregnant so I called the guy, the person back and asked <laughs> him if the gig was still available. We're going to need some money. <laughs> yeah, so I, yeah, that was, um, so I started doing a lot of show work at the same time when I was, when I would be back in town, I would be playing jazz gigs and I always kind of did you know jazz gigs here in town and a little bit of traveling all through all this you know my other all the other you know kind of work and career but then I took that six month run of doing rent and while I was out on the road doing rent I would take my guitar and go sit in at jazz clubs mm -hmm. and some of those clubs like in St. Paul and Denver St. Paul, Minnesota and Denver, I would wind up um, being able to book my own gigs there later just because I went and acquainted myself with the musicians and the people who ran the clubs. 
but so I started doing the Broadway stuff and then there became, there was a, a point in 2003 where um, there was a, a new show called Wicked um, and they were doing what they call a reading of a couple of the songs where they just uh, test out how the orchestration sounds and um, so I, I got called to do this reading not knowing anything, you know, it probably paid a $150 and then it, that was it. Uh, but then the show, when it, uh, when they decided to open the show in New York, I got called for that. So. Uh, another, another, another example of how you like hit, hit another home run, <laughs> yeah, you know, because like, you know, Broadway is all about how, you know, it's how long the show is going to run and here, and here you are with wicked. Right. Yeah, I know. I know. I hadn't, I'd, I'd had most of the shows run. I, I heard that the, the average time, average life of a Broadway show is six months or less. And a lot of them, you know, a lot of people that are in on the Broadway scene, they go from show to show like that because they don't last very long. But so I got, I got this, it actually wasn't my first show. I did another show before that, shortly before that, but it only ran about six weeks in preview. Oh, wow. So that was, you know, that was another one of those Broadway fatalities. But yeah, I, hit, I definitely hit a home run with, with uh, Wicked. So how do you get the, or is, it, is it as simple as you do a great job during the reading and then four months later when they start rehearsing the band, they're like, Hey, let's get that guy again. I mean, or do you, or do you have to kind of convince the, the contractor that you're worthy? How, how does this actually happen? The, the, um, I think the protocol is that if you get called for the reading and I, you, I think, um, you automatically get called, you're supposed to, I mean, all, all kinds of rules are probably broken about that, but basically the protocol is that if you do the reading and you, you know, that's sort of like your audition. Right. And you know, you don't screw up too bad. Then you get, you get called, you're automatically, um, you know, they're obligated to call you for the, the show. You may get this question a lot, but what's it like to play eight shows a week, you know, and. You know, at this point I was, I might not be the typical person to ask that because I get that. I do get that question a lot from all kinds of people, my friends that play jazz and they say, how can you do that? How is that must be hard. Um, but I think, and for me, it's not that hard. It's, it's difficult. You have to really pay attention, but I'm so grateful to have the gig that it's not hard. I don't know if, is, if that really explains it, but. No, is, is there, absolutely. And I guess I would ask a follow-up question. Is there a certain mindset you need to, you know, to, deliver the same level of performance, you know, night after night. I think it's that mindset that started 
during those club date days. Okay. You, when you're doing something that you think is inconsequential, that you know, after these people's wedding, that they're not they're they're not even listening to the band. Right. And you know, so you you think, oh, I'm just going to start screwing around. But if you take it seriously, people people notice. People right. notice all that stuff. Um, but I think that's the mindset that I developed from realizing that on club dates that, um, I mean, on Broadway, it's, you, they, they demand a certain amount of just, um, you know, you have to really be on your game. Yes, indeed. And, I guess it's one of, you know, one of the few full-time jobs musicians can expect these days, right? Yeah, or playing, well, there's touring, some touring groups, I guess, with, you know, uh, I don't know, I guess you could be touring with someone that tours a lot. Okay. With the pop or pop artists that really do tour still or or you could have a, a you know the house band on a tv show like oh, there you go yeah yeah that's another one but yeah the broadway scene and i i don't think the broadway scene was always like that because i've heard that at one point i mean at least in new york that it was like i don't want to do that because there was a lot more jingle work the studio mm -hmm. work and that's what everybody wanted to do. No one, the, no one really, the better players didn't necessarily do Broadway, but I think now a lot of really good players very well do Broadway. Right. It's, a, it's like a changing the goals um, or the target always changes as to what musicians will aspire to as far as work, right? Cause yeah. You, you, through the when was your first Broadway experience? Uh, my very first one was Rent, and that's where you, you and I subbed on Rent uh, on Broadway right. together, too. So um, that was my very first one. And I met, I actually met the, I met Jeff Potter through, I had known Kenny Russia, and that um, when they were, because were Kenny Russia had worked in the club date band that you and I, yes, met. yes, exactly. Yep. And um, yeah, just so for anybody listening, just just to show you how, how networking works in, in New York, I mean, at least how it worked for us, that um, I bumped into Kenny at a, a recording studio when they were recording the cast album. And I was making a record with They Might Be Giants. And mm -hmm. we literally met like in the lounge, you know, uh, pour, pouring coffee. And then he introduced, introduced me to Jeff Potter and I had no idea what the show was about. Or oh, no if it, that okay and yeah I know I had heard, I had seen I had seen you remember the days when when like they were heavily advertising that show on on that on the roof of yellow taxis in in yeah. New York City remember that but also you were and you were pretty ensconced in the rock scene then yes yes but yeah and I had no idea and then it was like two years later that Jeff actually called me to sub on the show. So I, I kind of did, did the same thing that you did, but I just remember thinking if I'm going to learn this show, there's no way I'm going to, uh, I'm going to make any errors. 
I, I, right. I, I remember just really shedding it to the point where it's like I lived the music and then when I walked in, I, I didn't want to disappoint anybody. The subs are actually held on a lot closer under the mirror than the regulars are. Yes, indeed. Yeah, very, very difficult to be a sub on Broadway if you, yeah. you know. Um, I think at about this point in the convo, take us to, so I'm thinking of Ron Carter. You brought up Ron, Ron Carter, and this would be a good way to get us into your, your solo stuff. And, um, okay, and I'm so thinking of Ron Carter cause, because he's, the, you know, doesn't he play, doesn't he play bass on, um, on, on So What? And kind of blue. Let me see. Is he on so what? I think that might be actually Paul Chambers. Oh yeah. No, that's Paul. yeah, that's Paul Chambers. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But, but Ron took over the bass chair in Miles Davis's group. Okay. The ne he was the bass next bass player after Paul Chambers, and uh, I think Paul Chambers is one of Ron's. Ron used really looked up to him. They're both from Detroit. Ron followed Paul and Miles' group. Ron wound up, wound up playing the line on the bass line that Paul Chambers plays on So What. Ron right. wound up playing that so many times with Miles. But, but yeah, so. So what do you do when you're, when you're recording your own stuff and you're looking over at Ron Carter and you're, do you ever just have a moment where you're like, this guy has so much history? Like, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I had a while to, to get used to it. Um, because I, I played in Ron's, I, I, Ron has a big band. Ron had, has different configurations of his group. Ron still plays a lot around town okay. uh, and on tour. He has a, a trio with guitar, piano, and bass. He has a quartet with saxophone, piano, bass, and drums. He has a nonette, and he has a, a big band. And I, I was... I got called to sub in his big band and which um, it was a little, I've, I'd probably done that. He does the big band probably just once a year, but for a, a week um, at one of the clubs here in New York. So I got called to sub on the big band and uh, it was a little kind of unsettling to, yeah, to, to go in and because in the big band the guitar player is sitting right next to Ron, uh -huh. and you know he's you know scrutinizing what I'm doing. In fact, at the first rehearsal I did with his big band, the first song, and I, I think I knew maybe one or two people in the big band, so I wasn't really acquainted with most of them, and I was a sub. It's my first rehearsal. So we did about eight bars into the first song we're rehearsing and Ron stops and goes, hold it, hold it, everybody. Greg, what are you playing on? <laughs> <laughs> Spotlight. <laughs> exactly. I was like, oh, where can I just disappear right now? At that point, you realize your music was upside down. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. But but anyway, yeah, there was something I was doing that he didn't like, and um, <laughs> that's so funny because it's but, it's yeah. also typical of right how I mean that happens to us a lot. I mean, oh, yeah, to musicians, and like Ron, you know, yeah, and he's not thinking like I'm gonna 
embarrass this guy. He's just thinking, I know Ron Carter. I know how he thinks. He's a side, he was a side man on so many record dates. When he does his own gigs, he wants things right. right. You know, he's not going to speak up at a recording date, but, but yeah, I know how he, that's, that was where that came from. It wasn't from trying to embarrass the guitar player, but he didn't realize, you know, how somebody like, how, you know, um, unsettling that could be to someone. But yeah, so I had, I managed to uh, play for his, in his big band for about five different years. Only, only one week a year, but still I kept getting called. So that's a good sign. And then I just thought, you know what? I, I want to do a record with this guy and he's not going to call me. So uh, I just kind of had this concept for a record with, with uh, you know, masters, older guys. Right. So I called Ron, you know, I, and I was, but I was very careful before I, you know, I, I thought a lot about it. A lot of thought went into it about how I was going to pitch it to him because I, I knew I couldn't pay him the way he's used to getting paid. Right. But um, I just made sure everything was, you know, the, the, the pitch was right. And when we went, he, you know, he agreed to do it because he knew me. And um, so I made sure all the, I had to make sure all my music was really correct and you know, easy to read, uh, you know, I had, you know, I had had it all planned out, the recording. So by that time, it was, it was still a little unsettling playing with him, just. And are mainly, you recording your original song tunes or, you know. I did two, two of only, I usually do a lot more of my original music on my recordings, but I only did two of them on this recording because I kind of wanted to do more standards. But we did do two of my songs and we did two of Ron's and then the rest of the songs are sort of, uh, uh, you know, old pop standards or, or jazz standards. How many, how, how many albums have you put out? Um, five so far and this will be my sixth when it comes out. And um, about what's the ratio of covers to original content 50 50 or you know over the over the five albums um i think most of those there's one record i think it's all my songs oh, nice. uh, usually it's about uh eight originals and two covers and this this record it's kind of it's the opposite that's flipped it's like two originals and eight covers nice greg how can how can we find your your work oh. how can how can listeners get in touch with you oh um, i can i have a website um gregscaff.com one g on the end of my first name g r e g s k a f f.com I'm on Facebook. Uh, I mean, you can email me. I'm down for lessons or, you know, Skype or whatever. Okay. Do, do you feel comfortable with your giving out? Do, do, do we get in touch with you on your webpage or 
you know, do you want to give out your email address? Oh, email address. Yeah. Greg Scaff at gmail.com. Okay. G-R-E-G-S-K-A-F-F. Okay. And, and your, is your music available on all, all streaming platforms? I'm pretty sure. I know it's on Spotify, Apple Music. Um, yeah, pretty sure it is. And what's the name of your new record that's going to be coming out? And when you know, it's going to I mean, be released? I haven't decided that my latest one that's already out is called Soulmation. It's, uh, but I, I, haven't, I haven't really decided on the title of this newest one yet. I thought about calling it um, In Full Swing, but I'm not sure about that. And then I thought about calling it um, um, uh, I can't remember um, actually my my the one that's out now, my latest one it actually came out a couple of years ago. It's called Soul Nation. It's kind of more it's not really traditional jazz it's it's loud guitars, which you know I like <laughs> what's not to like about it? Hey, you know, um, Greg, I really enjoyed our conversation and, um, your career is fascinating. One, can I tell one more, one Absolutely. more? Absolutely. Go ahead. As far as I was, uh, as far as I just said, I like loud guitars. The first time I met Ron Carter, we were talking about, I forget, we were talking about something, something came up about a guitar and it was, uh, you know, distorted or, or like it was overdriven guitar. And I remember Ron saying, I don't understand why would someone would want to distort a guitar. <laughs> and, I, and I felt like saying, I had just met him, but I felt like saying, because it sounds good. <laughs> that is that, that, that's hilarious. Um, well, thank you so much. What a great conversation. And, My pleasure, um, man. I'm really good. Thanks for asking me. And good talking to you. I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, and thank you. And your 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 career is very very interesting, and um, your story is compelling. And so I want to thank you. And that about wraps it up for today. Thanks, Brian. Well, folks, we're gonna leave it there for today. I hope you enjoyed the show, and please remember to subscribe and share this podcast. You've been listening to Friends in Music with me, Brian Doherty. Today's intro and outro music are provided by the band Treat and Release, whose music is available on all streaming services. To learn more about me or to get in touch, please visit my website, briandohertydrummer.blogspot.com. You can also follow me on all social media platforms. Thanks for listening and see you soon. My mechanic said there's no
in love. 